Please pray with me. Almighty Father, we praise you because you are a wise and faithful God. You are powerful and ever-present, our strong tower and our sure provision. We lack nothing when we completely rely on you. May we do that right now. Oh God, help us to surrender all that stands in the way of what you want to give us through this lesson. Holy Spirit, fill our minds and our hearts with your thoughts. Strengthen us inwardly. Illuminate our souls that we might see and know the truth in all of his power. Cause our souls to be blessed and filled with great, great joy. And, oh, Father, how I ask that you would use me as your servant. I surrender all that I am to you. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. This I ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. What is your greatest defining moment? A defining moment is a point in your life when you make a pivotal decision or you experience something that fundamentally changes you. Not only do these moments define us, but they transform how we think and behave. A once-in-a-lifetime achievement at school or at work can be a defining moment. The birth of a child, the death of a loved one, an unexpected change or loss can all be defining moments. We just mark the start of Advent. Christmas is a mere four weeks away, and we are reminded of the incarnate Christ. Receiving Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior is the most stunning and transformative defining moment that you and I can ever experience. When we receive his gift of salvation, we become children of God, endowed with life-changing, life-defining gifts from our Father God. These are individual spiritual gifts like preaching, teaching, encouragement, hospitality, administration, music, singing, prayer, and so on. In addition to those individual gifts, all God's children receive the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit, the gift of a permanent invitation to approach God's throne of grace. They all receive God's perfect peace, his extravagant and enduring unconditional love, his strength and sustaining power, and his unshakable joy. These God-given gifts and more define the children of God. In the Old Testament, God gave special gifts that defined his chosen people, Israel, or the Jews. Esther defined herself as one of God's people, even though she was not living like it. However, in Esther chapter 4, verse 15, through Esther chapter 5, verse 14, she begins to see and use the gifts God gave her to accomplish his purposes. She turns to him by fasting and praying, 
then boldly steps out in faith to follow his wise plan. This becomes her defining moment. She discovers that God-given gifts are best used according to God's wise purposes. That is what we will look at in our three divisions, fasting, feasting, and fuming. Our first division is fasting at Esther chapter 4, verses 15 through 17. If you'll open your Bibles, you can follow along with me. Verses 15 and 16. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night and day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Now in Esther chapter 4 verse 14, Mordecai says to Esther, Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Esther is challenged to continue living as a pagan in the king's court or finally identify herself with the people of God. Choosing to identify with the people of God was no small thing. To do so, first, Esther had to reveal her identity as a Jew to her unsuspecting and often volatile husband, King Ahasuerus. Second, this revelation would confront her with the fact that her life was not truly defined by the God of Israel, who calls his people to live holy lives separate from the pagan peoples around them. Esther was anything but separate from the pagans of the Persian Empire. Finally, Commentator Karen Job says that she would be identifying herself as a target of destruction under Haman's decree and an easy mark in the treacherous Persian court. In this moment, Esther has to decide who she really is. This is Esther's defining moment placed in a perilous situation over which she has no control, she finally steps into the role of heroine by identifying herself with God's people. She realizes that all her God-given gifts were given to her for such a time as this and therefore were best used according to his wise purposes. So Esther issues a command for a fast for herself, for her young women, and all the Jews of Susa. This fast meant that they would not eat or drink for three days. In the Bible, people normally fasted for one day. But in more extreme situations where the need for God's wisdom and help was more critical, longer fasts were needed. Now, this is not to say that a fast manipulates God in any way. Instead, a fast admits our helplessness and seeks a greater knowledge of God and His will. This is important for followers of Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 16, Jesus assumes that His disciples 
will fast, saying, and when you fast. And scripture records times when Jesus fasted during intense spiritual need. Fasting helps us focus on God, hear his voice, discern his heart, and seek his wisdom. Prayer usually accompanies fasting because fasting prepares us for humble, concentrated prayer. When we focus all our energies and attention on God, we speak to him and he speaks to us. That is the definition of prayer. And prayer enhances fasting. It makes it an opportunity to feast on God. Author Richard Foster says of the spiritual discipline of fasting that fasting is feasting on God. Scriptures like Isaiah chapter 58 verses 1 through 10 or Joel chapter 2 verses 12 through 13 teach that fasting must be accompanied by sincere humility and brokenness before the Lord. That is what we see in Esther and the Jews of Susa. Esther requests a fast for herself because she is about to put herself in extreme danger. The fast, then, is presumably a request for intercessory prayer. Yet again, though, the author of Esther fails to connect the dots by not explicitly mentioning God or prayer. But in Esther chapter 4, verse 3, he references Joel chapter 2, which says, If the people fast, weep, and mourn. Who knows? He, meaning the Lord God, may turn and have pity. So maybe Esther has come into the kingdom for such a time as this. The Lord God may finally turn and have pity on his people using her royal position. That is certainly their hope as they fast, weep, and mourn. In the last part of verse 16, Esther says that after the three-day fast, then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Her words are interpreted two different ways. Is Esther filled with unbelieving resignation, a fatalism that believes she will die no matter what she does? Or... Is she expressing a trusting submission to the will of God, no matter the personal cost? After fasting and praying, I believe that Esther submitted to the will of God because she carries out a plan that is completely contrary to human wisdom. And when I see something extraordinary happen that is contrary to human wisdom, it is usually God's wisdom at work. Esther needed God's wisdom. She is agreeing to walk into a situation where she is completely helpless and at the mercy of fickle, wicked, merciless men. Instant death is a distinct possibility. In ancient paintings of the Persian court, one of the men who surrounded the king 
held an axe in his hand to behead anyone who displeased the king. But here, God is providentially at work behind the scenes. He gifted Esther with exceptional beauty and charm, with a sweet disposition, a servant's heart, and a place in the royal courts as the queen of Persia. And we will soon see that he gifted her with a determined faith, a bold courage, and a sacrificial spirit. God put Esther in the exact right place at the exact right time to be his agent for fulfilling his ancient promise to his people. In this defining moment, she identifies herself with the people of God and takes responsibility for the God-given gifts she possesses. Though quite traumatic, it is a defining moment which transforms Esther from a beautiful young woman with an immature character to someone heroic, wise, and skilled at palace politics. Verse 17 tells us that now Mordecai is taking orders from Esther. She orders him to proclaim the three-day fast to the Jews of Susa. Then she surrenders to do God's will. In this division, the valiant young Esther teaches us that God-given gifts are best used, fully surrendered to his perfect will. What God-given gifts do you possess? How are you surrendering those gifts to his perfect will? Now you and I can dither over what is a gift from God and what is not, but we cannot quibble over the gift of eternal life. The most dramatic defining moment any of us can experience comes when we hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and decide how to respond to it. Again, Karen Job says that the gospel confronts us with the decision either to continue to live as pagans or to identify ourselves with God's people, the church. Our choice defines who we are and what, with what people we identify. The decision to be identified with Christ energizes our lives. It gives us a purpose bigger than our own concerns and problems and a hope that goes beyond our own death. It transforms us into people moved by the Holy Spirit, human agents of God's grace and love in the world. And if we live as Christ commands, in every moment and every decision, we will be the agents through whom the promises of the new covenant are fulfilled. Does that not motivate you to live as a child of God? God's children have been lavished with God-given gifts, gifts that are best used fully surrendered to his perfect will. Surrender to the Lord your God. Take time to discern his perfect will through fasting and prayer. His purposes are greater than yours. 
And who knows, maybe you, like Esther, have come to the situation that you are presently in for such a time as this. Maybe it is your defining moment. Esther's life was about to be completely transformed. She did all that she knew to prepare. And now she puts feet to her faith, and it involves feasting. Our second division is feasting, Esther chapter 5, verses 1 through 8. Verse 1, on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. Now, if you were a Jew telling your grandchildren this story, this is where you would insert a very pregnant pause. Esther is standing in front of the king. What will happen to the beautiful Esther? Will she live? Or will she die? You and I need to stop and imagine how much courage it took for Esther to enter the king's inner court uninvited. But we also need to consider how wise and strategic she was. She dresses in royal robes to declare that she is indeed King Ahasuerus's queen. She knows the king appreciates and demands beauty of his women. She remembers how he commanded Vashti, her predecessor, to be paraded before his guests to show off her exceptional beauty. So in preparation to break the royal law by entering the king's presence uninvited, Esther dresses to remind him why, out of hundreds of virgins, he chose her to be his bride and queen. And part one of her strategy works. Verse two, and when the king saw Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. After the pregnant pause and the heart-stopping suspense, the audience can now breathe a sigh of relief. Rather than saying, off with her head, the king receives Esther by extending his golden scepter to her. Having broken protocol to enter the king's presence, Esther now follows protocol to the letter. She uses her God-given gift of beauty and humility with God-given wisdom. She is strategic. She does not burst in and throw herself down at the king's mercy, begging for the life of her people. She maintains her regal composure. She approaches the king and touches the scepter, giving the king utmost respect and honor. Remarkably, the usually dense and self-absorbed king senses that there might be something bothering Esther, something so important she has taken 
such a dangerous risk. And he wants to know what it is. Verses 3 and 4, the king says to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Now there is an old saying that a way to a man's heart is through his stomach. And Esther employs this age-old method to slowly implement her plan. Again, the stamp of God's wisdom is evident. The fact that Esther has a feast prepared reveals that she believes that against all odds, the king will receive her favorably. The fact that she also has a plan in place proves her trust in the powerful providence of God. Esther does not respond to the king's generous offer and immediately asks the king to save her people. This is not part of her plan. Instead, she is wise and patient, stroking the king's ego, lavishing love and care on him, and exalting him as king with one feast, then another. Commentator Ian Duguid offers four reasons for her subtle strategy. First, she was asking for a reversal of an irreversible law written by one of the most powerful advisors in the empire and signed with the king's signet ring. Second, granting her request would mean that the king would lose 10,000 talents, an amount about as much as half the annual tax revenue of the entire Persian empire. Third, the king would lose face by canceling an edict that he had personally and officially authorized, even though he was ignorant of what he had done. Fourth, to make her request, Esther would have to reveal her hidden Jewish identity, risking her husband's anger for deceiving him for five years. A private feast lessened the formality of the royal court and eliminated the risk of publicly embarrassing the king while he was seated on his throne, surrounded by royal courtiers. In verse 5, the king readily agrees to Esther's invitation. Her feast is a smashing success, so much so that the king repeats his generous offer. In verse 6, he says to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. So whatever Esther wants, it's hers. Surely this is the big moment where Esther blurts out, Save my people, we are all doomed to die. Nope. It's Ted. Esther says in verses 7 through 8, My wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, 
Let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. So Esther leaves us with a cliffhanger, one that for us will not be resolved until January. She also gives us another great lesson about using God's gifts. Our second truth is that God-given gifts are best used by boldly stepping out in faith, despite doubt and danger. How are you making the most of the gifts God has given to you? Which doubts and dangers are causing you to disobey God and dishonor his gifts? Esther boldly and bravely steps out of her comfort zone and into the king's court with a determined faith and a settled resolve, reminiscent of the determination and resolve of Jesus as he journeyed to the cross. Commentator Landon Dowden notes that in Christ, there was no reluctance or rationalizing, just resolve. Esther was uncertain she would live. Christ was certain he would die. Every believer must employ the same bold faith to make the most of all the gifts God entrusts to us. He entrusts us with children for the ministry of motherhood or teaching. He entrusts us with the gift of encouragement for the ministries of intercessory prayer, spiritual mentoring, and compassionate listening. He entrusts us with the gift of hospitality for the ministry of feeding hungry souls physically and spiritually. And he entrusts all of us with the power of the Holy Spirit to obey his command to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything he commands us. Are you trusting God? to boldly step out in faith and obey him? Or are you giving in to the fear of doubts within and dangers without? Maybe you're paralyzed by procrastination and delaying your obedience to him. Esther did not have the luxury of time. She could not delay. The execution date for her people had been set. In a defining moment, she chose to use her God-given gifts by boldly stepping out in faith, despite any doubts she had or danger she faced. As her plan unfolds, Haman, the author of the devilish decree to exterminate the Jews, walks right into her trap. First, though, he walks right by Mordecai, and it leaves him fuming. That's our third division, fuming. Esther chapter 5, verses 9 through 15. Verse 9, And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, 
he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Now, Haman is walking on air after his exclusive feast with the king and queen. This was his defining moment. How powerful he is, what influence he has. He is held in higher esteem than any other person in the entire Persian Empire except the king. He is something to behold. Everyone bowed down before him as he passed, just as the king commanded. But as Haman leaves the palace, he sees Mordecai, and he does not rise or tremble before the great and powerful Haman. This fills him with wrath, and Haman goes from festive to fuming in an instant. Nevertheless, verse 10, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. Now, Haman does not act on his wrath. He goes home. You see, he cannot wait to regale his wife and friends with all that had happened to him at the palace. He sent and brought his friends and his wife, gathering them together for the sole purpose of bragging about himself. I cannot think of a more insufferable evening. Verses 11 through 12, Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with the king, which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced above the officials and servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. In the world's eyes, Haman is a very powerful, well-connected man. The right-hand man of the king of a vast Persian empire. He is at the pinnacle of his career. He has everything a man could ever dream of having, including ten sons. Among the Persians, the only thing more prized than a large number of sons was valor in battle. All Haman has are gifts from God. Scripture teaches that God pours out his blessings on the just and unjust alike. But not only does Haman fail to acknowledge or thank God for his many gifts, he is not satisfied with them. Verse 13, yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. All this, splendid riches, ten sons, unparalleled power and prestige in the Persian Empire, and a private feast with the king and queen, and the promise of another. All worthless because of the one thing Haman lacked. Imagine being one of his sons. They are worth nothing all because one man refused to bow before him. 
What a fragile ego. One man causes Haman's elation to be turned to wrath, and that wrath turned to revenge. Haman is completely undone. And just like King Ahasuerus, we see that Haman is in dire need of a better group of counselors. Verse 14, Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Haman does not seek God's wisdom. Instead, he seeks the so-called wisdom of his enabling parasitic friends and wife. And they say, Mordecai's a problem? Get rid of him. Hang him on a gallows. Never mind that Haman had already decreed the destruction of Mordecai and all the Jews in Persia. He cannot wait. His overinflated ego requires the immediate elimination of the man who sparks his wrath. Haman is pleased by the idea of murdering Mordecai so he can go joyfully to a feast. How twisted and depraved is that? Haman uses his God-given gifts for his own self-centered, self-serving, self-exalting needs. He collects idols, the biggest of which is himself, to fuel his pride. For his gross sin, he is about to face the ultimate defining moment of his life. Esther, on the other hand, seeks and heeds God's wisdom. Therefore, she recognizes that God-given gifts are best used for God's wise purposes. She uses her God-given gifts selflessly. This is the best way to show our gratitude for all he gives us. The lesson we draw from this division is that God-given gifts are best used with selfless gratitude, not spurned through dissatisfaction. How prevalent is the sin of dissatisfaction in your life? In what ways are you more focused on what you lack than what you have? Author John Piper calls the incarnation of Jesus the dawning of indestructible joy because the joy Jesus was bringing into the world was like no other kind in history. Once we have it, it can not be destroyed. The only place to find complete and irrevocable joy is in Christ. But who or what is killing your joy? Each time our joy fades or diminishes, it is because we have pursued a joy apart from Christ. It is because we have turned our focus on what we do not or cannot have, instead of being grateful for the tremendous outpouring 
of God's gifts of grace. Each time our joy evaporates, we must ask ourselves if we are being selfish or selfless with the gifts God has given us. What specific steps could you take to use your God-given gifts with selfless gratitude? God-given gifts are best used with selfless gratitude, not spurned through dissatisfaction. What would you say is your greatest defining moment? Esther's decision to use her God-given gifts of beauty, humility, and position in the Persian kingdom, according to his wise purposes, was a dramatic turning point in her life and in the life of her people. When presented with the choice to step out in faith and do what God called her to do, Esther is bold and courageous in the face of grave danger. While most of us do not face life or death situations like Esther, we all have defining moments. God's gift of the incarnate Christ is a defining moment that we celebrate this time of year. He utterly defines those who receive him, giving believers a new identity calling them by his name and molding them more and more into his glorious image. Receiving Jesus Christ as your personal Savior is the most stunning and transformative defining moment you will ever experience. Have you received this most precious gift? If not, please contact your small group leader or a pastor at our church. He is the best Christmas gift you can ever receive. And if you have received him as your personal Lord and Savior, you can trust God. You can trust God to boldly step out in faith and use all your God-given gifts according to his wise purposes. Who knows? It could be your most memorable, spectacular, life-altering, defining moment. Please pray with me. Oh God, you are the immortal, the invisible, and the only wise God. To you alone belongs all praise, honor, and glory. You are the God who has redeemed us we are yours. All that we have comes from your gracious hand. O oh Lord, as our minds turn to gifts this Christmas season, remind us of the best gift of all, the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, who died to give us eternal life as a gift of grace. Help us to surrender completely to him as our Lord and Savior. Then, Work your wise and sovereign plans in and through us to the praise of your great glory. This we ask in the name of Emmanuel, who is God with us. Amen.